out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the lawyer. It is the one and only Jay Bergen, who I spoke to very recently to find out about his life, both oh, and his career and also his time working with John Lennon. This was in the mid-70s, 75 to 76. He's got a new book out called Lennon, The Mobster and The Lawyer. The untold story, this is when John Lennon was having certain issues with the notorious Morris Levy, the mob-connected owner of Roulette Records. And uh, they were having certain issues about a record that had been produced by Phil Spector, Rock and Roll. So this is the interview. And after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was really the background to Jay's life and um, how he came to work with John Lennon. Anyway, Jay, it's over to you. Well, I, you know, I, I was a trial lawyer for 45 years, so I've done a lot of different uh, types of, uh, you know, law uh, cases, antitrust, securities, uh, copyright infringement and everything. And it happened that uh, one of my senior partners uh, at this firm I was at in 1975, uh, David Dolgenus had gotten hired by John after he left Alan Klein to represent him in connection with the dissolution of the Beatles partnership. And uh, so David had been representing him for several years. Uh, and then this problem with Morris Levy came up and I heard rumors about it around the office. And I had previously handled very successfully uh, a case uh, after I joined the firm in 1972, uh, where we represented Terry Knight in a lawsuit between Terry and Grand Funk Railroad. Right. Uh, so I had a, had a reputation in the office, and um, I, I said to David, if anything happens with this case, I'd like to be involved. So he called me and asked me to go to this meeting on February 3rd, 75, at uh, Capitol where the capital lawyers, including one from Los Angeles, was talking about what are we going to do about this? It sounds like Morris Levy's going to put out this <laughs> And they knew a lot about Morris Levy, and I knew almost nothing. Um, you know, I, I knew that he had founded Roulette Records in the 50s, but uh, that was about it. And halfway through the meeting, the conference uh, door opened, and really kind of stunned me because I didn't know he was going to be there. Right. So that's that's how it started. Uh, we all shook hands and introduced each other and uh, sat down and started getting some more background facts from John. Right. That was quite interesting, wasn't it? Because because I guess you would have seen the the kind of the Disney kind of film which was done last year, the eight hour Disney special of of the Beatles, Let It Be, wasn't it? By um oh God, the guy who did Lord of the Rings. I can't remember his name now, but um, oh yes, yeah, yeah. It was, called, it was called "Get Back." Get and back. The original, the original video was um, "Let It Be," and that was uh, that was done by uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg. And, That's right. You know, in, in the nineteen sixty nine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what was always quite interesting because we had a narrative in our mind about a lot of the Beatles stuff, and it was going to be. You know, they, they got a breakup and it was Yoko. And then as we watched this kind of eight-hour special, um, there was a strange kind of vibe because you're thinking, God, they seem to be getting on better and better. But we all know, a bit like the Titanic, it all finishes in the end. And there's that moment, a bit like Scooby-Doo. I don't know if you can remember Scooby-Doo, but when they pull off the mask, because you always think, oh, it's Yoko. And then it pulls off and it's it's kind of Alan Klein was the man who was the kind of the the person who slightly drive the Beatles apart, wasn't it? At that point, it seemed to give that impression that it was, it was, this is where the kind of rot had started to creep into their kind of rather fragile but creative partnerships. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I certainly, I wasn't there. John and I never discussed it. Uh, but uh, I don't think, I don't think Yoko was the, the prime reason they split up. Uh, I just think, you know, it had been a long, and winding road to <laughs> use a cliche because they, you know, I mean, you remember, I mean, John wrote the song Help, uh, 
in like 67. And that was kind of a, a plea basically saying, you know, this is crazy. You know, we're, we're really grinding ourselves into the ground. Um, yes, absolutely. So, I mean, when, when I, so what's the I mean, kind of, I, oh, sorry, what was that? No, go ahead. I say, so what's the kind of the background here? Because you, this is kind of, you said you met John in the office. This was 75. So what was what were the issues that John had had since the breakup of the Beatles, 1970 to 1975? And, um, and I get the impression that he sometimes wasn't the best judge of character and people and sometimes could say yes to people when probably a no might have saved him quite a lot of pain and heartache. Well, there were several things I... I found out, I learned about John when, when I was working with him for those two years. <clears throat> One, he was very shy. Two, he did not like to say no to people. He he felt that, like, I think he felt that he was being rude. And this is just my observation. I mean, uh, he did say <clears throat> at one point, and he testified, I'm shy uh, about that. And the, the other thing is, and Klaus Vormann told me this when I interviewed him in uh, October of 1975, he said, John is very naive about business. He doesn't, he just doesn't understand it. He, he, he'd sit down and he'd talk to you and, and say, I think I'm thinking of doing maybe, uh, maybe doing an album with Bob Dylan. You know, not recognizing or thinking that Bob Dylan's with one record company and John's with another one. And how, you know, how is that going to uh, work? Mm -hmm. So uh, I he didn't know anything about Mark. Really. I think yeah, he did testify. Oh, your connection. Oh, Jay, your connection just went down. Did you has anything kind of changed or did you put your hand over the microphone there? I, I might have put my. I might have been waving my hand around. I'm oh. sure. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. Even, I, even though I'm Irish, I think I'm partly a, Italian. I, I, I talk with my hands a lot. Yes. No, that's fair <laughs> enough. Anyhow, um, John really thought that Morris was a character, and and that's the word that he used to describe him, because Morris talked like this because he said he had polyps. In his in his throat, and he was a big man. He was over six feet, and uh, he loved to talk about himself. And John just looked upon him as kind of a, a character, you know, like a a movie character. Yes. Uh, and he did not realize, and really didn't focus on, uh, that Morris was really a dangerous person. Yes. Uh, dangerous in the sense that he was really wired into the mafia the Genovese crime family in New York. And, um, you know, he could be, he could be violent. And he had this big uh, black bodyguard who was with him all the time, Nathan McCalla, who ran uh, one of his small labels, but that was just a cover for Nathan being his bodyguard. So um, I, I think the best way to describe John is that he was very naive in business and, and also David, he did not want to be involved in the business in any way. And I think that's why Yoko was able to, uh, you know, kind of take over and really run the business side. And yes. he even testified. He said, business, you know, that's not my job. My job is to write the songs, produce the records. Business, I, I don't want to be involved. Yes, it's interesting because when when – most of the Beatles were sitting down during the the film, you know, Get Back and talking about Alan Klein. They were all quite keen, apart from, I think Paul was like, no, I'm not sure about this guy. I think we should really check him out. But everyone else was like, no, I had a chat with him. He seemed really charismatic. But you don't realise that con people are often very charismatic and they have the most amazing outwardly person personality and can sort of um, spin interesting narratives and stories. So obviously... Even though they were in the even though they got to the seventies, they they were still quite naive about what they were signing and what they weren't signing. Well, and remember also that Paul at that point was with uh, with Linda Eastman, and Linda Eastman's father had quite a reputation. Some of it not so uh, uh, not not very good, kind of negative. 
as a lawyer in the entertainment industry and his, his son, John uh, Eastman. And uh, Paul was at the, in the situation where he could hardly uh, say, you know, well, I don't want to, I don't want to work with my uh, maybe soon to be father-in-law and John and uh, George and Paul and, and uh, Ringo, you know, took a dislike uh, to uh, Lee Eastman, the father. I never met him, but I did deal with um, John Eastman because he represented Grand Funk Railroad uh, in the case. And um, I tell a story in the in the book about how uh, John and I were walking along Fifth Avenue one day and he... Uh, he was talking about he somehow John Eastman's name came up and he said, you know, do you know John Eastman? And I said, yeah, I dealt with John. And he said, what did you think with him? Think about him. And I said, well, he, he really thinks he's the cat's meow. And and he isn't. Uh, and he's very arrogant. And John's response was John Eastman was born 40 years old in a dark suit, a white shirt and a blue tie. <laughs> so. He didn't like John at all, and he didn't like Lee. So, I mean, that, you know, that kind of created a schism right there. Yes, a big schism. So can you just describe, just to get a little bit, bit, bit of a background, New York in the 60s and early 70s? Because I've done quite a few interviews with people from that that kind of, I suppose, garage rock scene. And a guy called J.J. French, who was in Twisted Sister, who talked about the mob and the mafia and you know, things happening that um, we would find quite surprising today. But it was a very different city, wasn't it, in, in those days? Well, it, it was. And the music industry was was very different in those days. I mean, the mafia really had, uh, you know, their, uh, their tentacles uh, in the music industry. And uh, I, I mentioned in the book that in 1986, you know, almost a, 10 years after uh, the, the, the Levy case with John, uh, Morris was indicted along with uh, 17, I think, other members of the Genovese crime family for all kinds of uh, uh, crimes uh, involving uh, the record business. After a long federal investigation by a grand jury in uh, Newark, New Jersey. So it was a different time. Uh, I mean, there were always stories that, uh, like Hall and Oates, were controlled by the mafia. Um, the uh, the Four Seasons, controlled by the mafia. Um, they they had their their hands in a lot of bus businesses, not only just the the, the music business. Yeah. So it was it was a different time. Yes. So then sort of slightly going forward into the 70s, what had John done to to put, put him into the relationship with Morris? And, and what was the situation for him to try to get out of it, which is obviously where you come into it? What, what had been his kind of slight mistakes? Well, Morris, well, I'm, I'm not so sure it was it was a mistake. But, you know, Morris had a reputation for a putting his name on songs so that he would get a portion of the royalties stealing. And the other thing he, he would do is, is file these bogus copyright infringement cases. And when the Beatles released uh, uh, Abbey Road and the first single was come together, uh, there was the line in there, here come old flat top. <laughs> and Morris filed a lawsuit in 1970 in federal court claiming that that infringed the line in You Can't Catch Me, the Chuck Berry uh, hit from 1956, uh, Here Come a Flat Top. And the case, you know, kind of just wallowed in the, in the court for uh, several years. And when John was in uh, Los Angeles in October of 73, David, starting uh, to record the rock and roll album with Phil Spector, suddenly that case was, was going to be coming into trial in New York City. And John said, I am not coming back. I'm working now. You know I can, can't do two things at the same time. I'm working now. Just settle it. So Harold Sider, who was John's business advisor, who uh, lived in... Uh, Los Angeles and worked for uh, Universal Music, 
uh, he settled the matter with Morris by agreeing that John would record three of Morris's songs, one of them being You Can't Catch Me and maybe Angel Baby or Be My Baby on this album he was working on with Phil Spector because mm -hmm. John was going to sing the old rock and roll songs from the from the 50s and 60s. Yes. Well, Phil then at the end of December in 1973 disappeared with the master tapes. Uh, nobody could get in touch with him. So six months later, they haven't still haven't gotten the tapes. And John goes into the studio and records Walls and Bridges, which are his own songs that he has written. Mm -hmm. Well, when that came out, Levy called Cider and said, hey, this is John's next album. When he knew it, it wasn't the album that his songs were supposed to be on, uh, I want a, an explanation from John Lennon. So they finally met in October uh, at a, a club and restaurant that uh, Morris was a member of, the Club Cavallero in New York. And it was at that meeting that uh, Morris claimed that John made an agreement with him, nothing in writing, David, mm. to to sell the rock and roll album on TV. You know, where you send in your 498 and yes. like a L or something like that. And so John then went in and finished the album, recorded a lot of new tracks, used the same band uh, as in um, On Walls and Bridges. And at the end of December 1974, Capitol said, well, we're, we're going to release this album. And, and Cider had to tell Morris, we're not going to be able to sell this on TV. We have to get EMI's permission. Morris knew that. They, John and Yoke and, uh, and, and Cider told him repeatedly that you know everybody in the music business knew that the Beatles were signed exclusively to EMI and Capitol in the United States. And so Morris, by the time I, I was involved, John had mistakenly, and to get back to your question about any mistakes John made, in November, uh, Morris kept asking him, I want to hear my songs. I want to hear my songs. He knew he was, he knew John had gone into the studio and recorded them mm -hmm. in October, trying to finish the album. And finally, John gave him a rough mix, two reel-to-reel -reel tapes, so that Morris could listen to them. Well, when he told Harold Sider what he had done, Sider said to him, I wish you hadn't done that. <laughs> because now Morris has the album. It's not the finished album, David, but it's the guts uh, of, the, of the rock and roll album. And that's what he announced started buying advertising time on TV in January uh, and early February of 1975. That's what he used to put the album out, and it was called Roots. Right. John sings the great rock and roll hits, Roots. So that's what, when that happened or was about to happen uh, at the meeting that I was at with John, uh, Capital was talking about, well, we ought to sue Levy. Uh, maybe we can get an injunction in a New York court. And I said, that's that's just going to waste a lot of time. And we may not get an injunction. And I, I asked John, I said, how long will it take to finish rock and roll? He said, two days. And that was the decision. He went in the next day, February 4th, February 5th, and on the 6th, uh, it was delivered to Capitol, and they released it on February 13th. Right. And when it came out, he pulled, he stopped advertising the Roots album and turned around and in the next month sued John Capitol and EMI uh, and Cider and Apple Records uh, once in state court and once in federal court. And, and, I, and I believe... David, and I've always believed that Morris did this because he thought he could bully John into getting capital and EMI to do a deal with him. Right. Because John had caved in on the come together case and settled that, and he thought he could do it uh, again. In fact, 
On January 30th, 1975, Sider went up to Levy's office to uh, tell him that Capitol would not release the album on TV. We're going to release it like all the other Beatles albums. And Levy, after playing the uh, the reel-to-reel of of You Can't Catch Me, said to Sider, I'm going to put it out. I've got a shot. I've got a shot. Morris was a grifter. I mean, he was a a crook. So he was just angling. Now that he'd gotten John into his clutches, uh, he was angling to have John somehow go to Capitol EMI. Well, this is the way to solve it. And everybody's decided, particularly John, I'm not going to settle with Morris. I want to get rid of him. Uh, He and Yoko said to me in the early days there, Jay, all we want to do is hold down the amount of money that um, John is going to owe to Morris. And I said, well, if I have anything to say about it, you're not going to owe him any money. And right. <laughs> that's, that's what happened. We're, we're off to the races. At that you're point. off to the races. This is a very exciting moment, isn't it? So then you're, you're on this case with, with some massive characters and huge businesses. How do you then start to develop your next strategy on this? Because it sounds like a difficult one, isn't it? And you've, you know, you've, you've had certain experience, but this is another new game, isn't it? With a, 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 dif- a, a different set of players and a different set of rules. And also Morris, who's, who's, you know, I mean, he does remind you of some very extreme people who get to the top, regardless of what they do. So it, you know, he, well, did he scare you, Morris, by the way? No, no, because I, I knew that, I, I knew that we all had too, too big a profile. He was not going to start messing around with us. Uh, <laughs> yes. But one of the things I liked about litigation was that every case was usually different. So I had to learn something new. And, and my key thing uh, as a trial lawyer was the, the most important thing to me, David, were the facts. The law is, is whatever the law is, the law is. But the facts are the most important. And I spent a lot of time. Uh, with uh, John Maypang, Harold Sider, and some other witnesses that we used in the trial, mm-hmm. really nailing down the facts. And I knew since there was nothing in writing between John and and Morris, I knew that Morris was going to have to lie. Uh, in fact, I told I told John more than once. Uh, look, I think we have a, a good a good chance here. I'm not going to give you a guarantee, uh, but I think we really have a good chance. Uh, and John said, "Why?" I said, "Well, <laughs> you're going to be telling telling the truth. Morris is going to have to lie." And you and I have gone over the facts, John, a number of times, and the story is the same. Mm. It wasn't a written agreement. It wasn't an understanding. You told him repeatedly, and so did Cider, and everybody, as I, I'm repeating myself now, mm-hmm. everybody in the music industry knew that the, the Beatles were exclusively with EMI. So that that's what I did. I just I started gathering uh, the facts and pulling them together. Uh, and uh, you asked if I was afraid of, uh, of Morris. During during the day I took his deposition, uh, he had a client named Thomas Eboli, who was nicknamed Tommy Ryan because he was a boxer when he was young. Mm-hmm. And Thomas Eboli was a high-ranking official in the Genovese crime family. Well, one night in 1971, he came out of his mistress's house in Bensonhurst and somebody shot him five times in the face, killing him. And that started a mafia war that wound up with 16 or 17 people, mafia people being killed over the next couple of years among the, the five families in New York City. So during Morris's, uh, <laughs> during when I was taking Morris's deposition, I knew that Eberly, uh was a partner or an underground partner in one of Morris's record companies. So I asked him, do you know who Thomas Eberly is? And his nickname is Tommy Ryan. And he looked at me and his face turned red and he got up and walked out of the room. 
And I said to the uh, young lawyer who was representing him at the uh, at the deposition, I said, well, what's going on? Where's Mr. <laughs> Weedy going? <laughs> so, so obviously this lawyer, Alan Kanzer, didn't have a, any idea who Thomas Ebley was and where mm. I was going with this. He walked out of the room and about 10 minutes later, they came back in and uh, Morris sat down and glared at me. <laughs> and, and, yes. and the lawyer said, uh, Mr. Bergen, I, I think we should, you know, proceed, uh, pr pursue another subject. Mm. And I did. I went on. I just wanted him to know that I knew who he was, who yes, he really was. I know. It's uh, And the Genevieve family, I can't remember which one did what, but there was one who controlled the garbage, wasn't there? The garbage crews of new york which were quite and then there's the unions and then there was other people with connections in chicago and las vegas so it was it was very kind of mixed wasn't it and there was kind of moments of peace and then there was moments of kind of all-out warfare so um but most of them yes it was it was live and die in a rather sort of murky but shallow grave mostly so as the case progressed how did john and yoko deal with it because obviously no one wants to have this kind of legality above you know uh, on their minds all the time did it did it sort of have an impact on them at all or did they feel a little bit better when you were on their team well i i think that's what happened um about a month after i met john um he called one day and he said, can you come up tomorrow morning to the uh, Dakota and uh, meet Yoko? And I said, yeah, sure. I can come up to her. Should I bring anything? He said, no, just Yoko wants to meet you. I said, okay. So I went up 11 o'clock, sat in their uh, big living room overlooking uh, Central Park. And um, Yoko came in, sat down, and it was obvious that she had read both of the complaints. They had both been filed at the time. She asked me a whole series of questions about my uh, my background, how long I'd been practicing law, what my experience was, and then we got into uh, the case. And um, maybe you've seen some of the articles where Yoko always talked about, asked people when their birthday was, when certain things happened because she was into uh, you know astrology and everything. She never asked me anything like that. It was all about the case. And after about an hour or so, she uh, she said, well, uh, thank you very much for coming. I appreciate your time. She stood up. Uh, I got up and uh, we shook hands and I left. And I said before that David, that uh, John was a little bit naive. I said, well, I must be I must be really naive because it wasn't until years later, David, that I realized that that was an audition. <laughs> If Yoko had not liked me and not thought that I was the person who could represent John and handle this thing, I would have been out. They would have, yes. Yoko would have called uh, David Dalgenis and say, uh, I want another lawyer. Yes, absolutely. So, she, it was basically. So throughout, so throughout the case, she was very quiet. Uh, and the night before, the trial started on January 12th, 1976, which happened to be my birthday, but I did not mention it to John and Yoko. I was staying in a hotel in New York because I had a long commute out to New Jersey. And um, I told John I'd be in the hotel. And I said, if anything happens, call me. We called me around midnight. And he said, uh, is it OK if Yoko comes to the trial? And I said, oh, yeah, of course, I, I would have invited her. And, and yes. by now, David. Sean is about three months old. He was born the previous October. And so the next morning, uh, the two of them showed up uh, with a limo. And the two of them came to every day of the trial, 20 days spread over January, March, uh, and April. Blimey. And Yoko never, never said anything. Never said, well, Jay, I think you ought to do this or you ought to do that. Um, and then on the 8th of April, it's, it's, it's kind of victory time, isn't it? Well, we won the first part of the case in January Then the judge had, uh, had other matters. So we, we were off for the month of month of March. And then we started again in April, no mid-March 
We started again, we were off the middle month of eight, February. We started again on the counter plans and that ended on April 8th. Right. And this is the, the bit where, which is kind of amazing. You've got these figures about the, you know, total to John, total to capital EMI and John Lennon. So what was, what was, how was Morris sort of coping with this kind of three month period? Was he keeping the stamina and, and the kind of commitment to the, to his case or did he start to waver as well? He, he wavered. He, he really bailed out. Um, once, once he lost the first part of the case, which basically said, A, there was no contract, and B, you had no right to release this album. Morris rarely came to court. John and Yoko were there every day. John was very into this case, uh, David. He was, he was a huge help to me, and we were a huge help to each other because he was really uh, into defending this. And I think... I think looking back on it, it was it was critical and helpful that he and Yoko, particularly John, were in court every day because they got to see every witness. They also got to see how the judge handled uh, the case, uh, the trial as it went on. And John, you know, once he got on the witness stand uh, in uh, in January, um, the first time. I think it was January 20th. Um, he was very comfortable. And the other thing was that we had a judge who was a classical musician, played the harpsichord and the piano in a classical music amateur group, but he knew nothing about the Beatles. He knew right. nothing about Lennon. He knew who they were, but that was it. But you know, there's the photo in the book with John on the witness stand where Bob Gruen sneaked the camera into the courtroom. And I think it was January 20th and took two photos of John on the witness stand. And you can see John pointing to the judge, explaining something. And the judge with his hand on his, the right side of his face, listening intently and standing right in the middle in the foreground is Bill Shirtman, who was Morris's lawyer, objecting. And Shirtman constantly and regularly objected because he knew that these long colloquies between the judge and John were not good. Because John, because the judge really wanted to know about this music. Right. God, that's fascinating. And, and, how, and how John produced records and how the rock and roll album contrasted radically from the Roots album, which was cheesy, as John said. Cheesy as well. But then there's a, there's a really interesting bit at the end of your book, which is to do with the, the payment side and a guy called Prettyman as well, and this kind of relationship with John and the, and the record label. Are you able to explain some of these kind of like slightly complicated finance deals and and aspects of people going behind each other's back which seems even more murky at times well you know uh, barrett prettyman was a very very uh high level lawyer in washington and represented capital and emi uh, barrett prettyman was famous for arguing uh cases before the united states supreme court but once we got the judgment where morris owed us uh, collectively, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, Morris and his lawyer started negotiating with Barrett Prettyman behind my back. Uh, because once we got that judgment, then the next step was an appeal. Morris mm. had lost the first part. He'd lost the second part. So there'd be an appeal to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in Manhattan. And the other critical thing, uh, David, is that right then in January of 1976, the Beatles contracts with EMI expired. So John at that point and the other Beatles were free agents. Now, I don't know whether John was negotiating or somebody was negotiating with, uh, with Capital, but somebody at Capital, and I'm, I'm sure it was Basketball, decided, look, 
if we can settle this case and get out with some money, it's better than running the risk of going through an appeal and spending more money and for the, the legal fees. Because remember, we'd been in court a lot. Mm. So it was expensive to uh, capital, uh, particularly since Barrett Prettyman uh, was based in Washington and he'd always have to come up to New York for whatever was going on. So they settled for $170,000. And Barrett called me and told me what the settlement was. And they tried to get him not to tell me. And, you know, I was furious. I, I, I said, how, how could you do this? He said, Jay, this is what the client wants to do. This is what EMI and Capital want to do. Uh, he didn't apologize. It was, you know, it was part of the, it was part of the business. Yes. We want to get out. So they, they settled for 170000 I think Morris paid them 20000 up front. But that meant when they were out of the case, David, that meant that we had the burden of handling the whole appeal. We had to defend the first part of the case, the damages. Um, so they really, they left us holding the bag. I didn't totally understand it, but it, it was just a business decision. And I don't, you know, I, I guess I used to, I used to think at the time, well, look, look at all the money that capital and EMI have made from the Beatles and can, and will continue to do, uh, with their catalog in yes. the future. They're not willing to do this. And, uh, I, I think, you know, Baskar Menon came to New York he testified. Uh, other executives came to New York and testified, and I think they were they were just glad to be rid of it. I don't know whether they Morris finally paid them everything of the hundred and seventy thousand, but yes, it's the decision they made. Blimey, it is a murky world. I mean, yes, because having done lots of interviews with bands, you know, trying to work out about the ownership of the actual disc, the publishing rights, there's there's kind of layers of complexity that no young musician really understands what they're doing when they sign those contracts. And then decades later, they're still wondering who owns what and where is the master tape. So it's kind of, it, the music industry is particularly murky, isn't it? You, you've got to admit, it's not one of the yeah. easiest ones to work out. I've, and I've, I've, I've always told, uh, you know, after that, I, I got some other music industry business. Uh, and I always told uh, young artists, singers, songwriters, groups, do not give away the publishing hang on to the publishing and if that's going to blow up a, a record deal you should walk away from the record deal because if you've got songs that are really can live long i mean you know what uh what dylan and uh, bruce springsteen and stevie nicks and uh, david bowie they've all sold in, in this in the last 12 months or 18 months their music publishing for tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. Yes. They've cashed it in, haven't they? They've just said, we don't, we're fine. <laughs> we, we've only got another 10, 20 years and we might as well just have it. You can take care of it. But um, I can understand vaguely that. It's just, it's a shame when your 20 year old kid has signed a three CD record deal and they they realize they they don't have the publishing and they're never going to own the master recordings and you know they they have you know the whole life of feeling slightly bitter about the whole experience which is a whole yeah. a horrible gig actually no so, and i understand that and i i agree with you yeah and um so then when when that happens is that the end of your relationship with john and yoko or do you keep a connection with them no i did not uh, I, I did have to deal with uh, Yoko in terms of the uh, appeal, but that was when, remember, this is, I mean, you've, you've read the stories how John wanted to really raise Julie, uh, Sean. He felt, and he told me this, he felt that he had really, you know, not been a father to Julian. And I know yes. he's he said this in interviews and he did not want to make that mistake with whatever child was born male female didn't make any difference uh and once sean was born you know he really took over a, a lot of the um the care uh, of sean and in fact uh, the bob gruen picture in the in the book that was taken i think a few weeks after sean was born of john holding 
Sean in bed and with a huge smile on his face. I mean, he was just ecstatic. Yes. So once, once the case ended, he was no more court. I'm finished. Uh, they didn't even come to the, uh, the final argument on the counterclaims. Uh, that's it. Uh, I'm now going to take, take care of uh, Sean. And he did that for the next five plus years before they started recording um, Double Fantasy. Yes. And even then, you know, I'm sure you've seen the pictures of Sean in the studio uh, with, yes. with John recording that album. Amazing. Yes, I know. I did did a lovely interview with Bob kind of probably last year when he had brought another book out. So um, it was nice. And also you get a chance. One of the characters in rock and roll that I love is Jimmy Iovine, who you mention in the book as well. You met him in 19. Did you meet him in 1978 working? He worked on rock and roll, didn't he? And then he introduced you to another band called Flame. Yes. Yeah. Now, I met him in uh, in 75. Because uh, when the uh, when the first ads for Roots went on TV, he called John, and did you see the ad? And um, John gave me Jimmy's number to ask him, uh, call him, and ask him, uh, you know, tell me about those two reel-to-reel tapes that you made at the record plant and delivered to uh, Levy, to Levy, to yes. John, to give Levy. And Jimmy explained, you know, this was not a this was not a finished finished album. Uh, and in fact, you know, John, Jimmy and I became friendly after that. Um, uh, the night that John was killed, uh, I got a call at about quarter of uh, twelve. I was asleep at home in New Jersey, telling me that John had been shot and was dead. And I knew that Jimmy was in the studio in Los Angeles, uh, Cherokee with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and they were recording the, the follow-up uh, to Damn the Torpedoes, Hard Promises. Mm. And I called Jimmy and got him on the phone, and I told him that John uh, had been killed in front of the Dakota, and all he said was, oh, my God, and the line went dead. Yeah. And, you know, I... I spent a lot of time with Jimmy after that over over the years, and um, we never talked about that night. Yes, I'm not surprised. It's too too much to cope with, really, isn't it? It's just too horrible. Um, yeah, that was terrible. And then, I mean, God, you, you said you interviewed Bob. Yeah, Bob Gruen. Yes, he he's brought a book out which I probably got near me. Yeah, he was delightful. Oh, yeah, this is the one. I've got the book right here. Bob is a great guy. He is a great guy. Look, this one. Yes, I've got it right here on the shelf. <laughs> yeah, no, it was lovely because he's, you know, obviously his photographs are, are, are extraordinary. After such a, oh yeah, Jess, that was it. Did you ever get the mastered tapes back from from Levy? Did they ever reappear, or have they just been lost in time? No, no. Part of yeah, they left as part of the final judgment of the court. Once we won on the on the appeal, except that that uh, the. The appellate court did reduce John's uh, damages, but he still got like, I don't know, $86,000. But part of the deal was that all of the unsold records and master tapes and, and, you know, and whatever he had. And remember, those were in the days of uh, the old eight tracks. Yes. So they were also selling eight track tapes and they delivered uh, several boxes of all of this material to me, uh, my office, and I called uh, Yoko one day in 77 and uh, brought them up to her. So <laughs> they're somewhere in the... Uh, Basement <laughs> loft. <laughs> in, in the storeroom of uh, memorabilia. Yes, God, that is quite memorabilia, isn't it? And then, and just briefly, and then with the rest of your career after that case, did you keep just taking interesting cases and finding new interest in loopholes and laws and defending people in the no, world I of... And I, you know, I, I tried to develop a, a practice in, uh, you know, the music industry. And, and I had, you know, uh, Flame and then, um, do you remember uh, Till Tuesday? Yes. 
um, Voices Carry. I represented them. I had a band from Boston named Face to Face. And so, but it, it never really developed very much. But when I went on, I went on from there to handle a lot of interesting things. I represented the uh, New York Yankees and several other uh, major league baseball teams uh, in uh, litigation matters. And uh, finally, after 45 years in uh, 2008, I retired. Yes, so that's it. That's it. So when did you start writing this book? When did that start to well, I, ca I kept, and this is the only file I kept of everything I had from the trial. I had five or six banker's boxes with uh, not only all of the transcripts from, uh, let me show you one of the transcripts. Oh, excellent. Yes. Let's see. Let's see some data. We love data. Oh. This is one of the this is one of the transcripts, and Excellent. You know, it's got all, the, all the testimony in it. Wow, that is amazing! That is so fantastic. Had all of these. This is this is a separate day. This was January fifteenth, nineteen seventy six, and and also I have the appellate record, which is it's called the record on appeal, and that's everything, all of the depositions, not all of the depositions, but all of the exhibits. The testimony and everything. So I had these bankers boxes, and I'd move them, David, through five different moves. And finally, I live down in North Carolina now in the mountains. And um, I was trying to. I suddenly I was thinking about what am I going to do with all these files? And I thought, well, maybe I'll maybe I'll donate it all to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. And I went out to the garage where I had them stored in a storeroom. And I pulled out some of John's testimony. I sat down on one of the boxes and started reading it. And I realized, I said to myself, there's a story here. There's a book here. And you have to tell it because there was very little press coverage, David, at the time of the trial. And I think mainly because John had kind of dropped out. Uh, he was just He was just trying to be like you and like me, just yeah. a person, not the not the rock and roll icons. And um, so I started reading it and I thought there is a story here. And so I started writing it. And then I had a friend down here who's a, a playwright and a director. And she talked me into doing a, a live show uh, with a multimedia in the background. And we put on that, that show uh, seven times uh, in the area here. Uh, I had it videotaped, but at the same time, as I was writing that 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 show, and she was helping me, uh, you know, kind of put it together, um, I started writing the book, and that was in um, 2017. Right, and I I finally finished the book in uh, 2021. Um, I had a, I had a lot of help from a woman named Lorraine Ash, who is a an expert on uh, memoirs, former newspaper woman, uh, excellent writer and author, and uh, I got the publishing deal uh, with a small independent publisher in Memphis in uh, October of 2021. Wow, that is fantastic! That is so yes, that is and brilliant. I, I tried for, for the first six months of, of 2021 to get a literary agent in New York to help me get a publishing deal. And everybody, every, almost everybody I spoke to says, ah, this, there's no market for a publisher. And I knew I was going to put John's testimony in there uh, about how he made records. And yes. he had given a lot of interviews over the years but I don't think he had ever explained the whole process of going into the studio, hiring a band. Um, <laughs> there's that one terrific line where he's describing how, you know, he starts teaching the band the songs and then they'll do the first couple of run throughs. And there's a funny remark he made. He'd always say to the musicians, uh, did I hear, did I miss anything? Did anybody make a mistake? 
Yes, God, that's amazing. Yes, it's good. I mean, it's lovely. You know, it's great that you've archived it and documented it. And I guess you also feel personally that that's that's been such a chapter in your life that you've managed to sort of process and do something with it rather than just put it in the recycling and um, and just kind of, I don't, you know, it's one of those things as we get older, dealing with certain things that you sometimes can push to one side and then you bring it up and then you think, let's kind of re- I don't know, reanalyze it, re, you know, rethink it a bit and, pro, you know, and just then kind of let it go. Did you have that kind of experience of yeah. working through it yourself that you thought, wow, that was quite something? No, I did because I, excuse me, I, I did because I, I wanted to, I wanted people to know who John Lennon was, who this man was at this time in his life. He, he just turned uh, 40. Yes. Uh, I mean, he was close close to being 40. He was 35 years old. And he dropped out of the music business. And I wanted people to know who he was, what kind of a person he was. And and it's been very gratifying because in a number of the reviews of the book and and also in in, you know interviews, people have said, you know, you really, you really gave us a feel uh, for who John Lennon was rather than you know the lost weekend and and all of that this is this was this was who he was yes absolutely i know there's a, there's an amazing book by i think philip norman who talks about john lennon and that last bit in it and it's kind of the night he gets shot and it's about his two cats kind of waiting for him and he never comes home and i find that so heartbreaking having had that conversation right at the start that you know john would have had these kind of, I can't remember what they were called, but it did make me feel really upset just thinking about his yeah. cats. And it's like, yeah. oh, God. Right. right. Take a breath. Do you have any, uh, to ask you a, a question, has there been much of a reaction to the book in England? Yeah. I mean, people have been really curious and interested because, again, it was a great timing because of the, you know, the the film that came out last year and this kind of everybody was talking about it and then wanting to know a lot more about John and being very curious about it so that has kind of captured a lot of people's you know interest and imagination and and obviously the Beatles will always be with us while popular music is is still here so yeah there has been a lot of interest in the book actually and and curiosity and you know it's one of those cases and I think we all start looking you know we get the first narrative and then you start digging a little bit underneath those narratives don't you so you sort of like me you know you start becoming aware of you know Morris Levy and you start thinking but not even with John Lennon just his kind of other sort of world of what's that guy Tommy this kind of yes the mob Tommy James you know that whole kind of world and and these kind yeah. of characters start to appear don't they and everybody is you know it's a curious time of music because we get the record we might be interested in who wrote the sleeve notes or who did the artwork but then it's kind of like oh that manager and that manager you know like David Bowie and his world with you know Tony DeFries and then Michael Lippmann and then his kind of all those kind of people that he had to deal with while making music so I think I think there, there is a lot of interest in it and we love, you know, the photographers of the time, whether it's Terry O'Neill, who did Bowie and various other people, or Bob Gruel. You know, we we get fascinated with it, don't we? So um, there is a lot of interest. I think it will be one of those books that will just always be, you know, interesting to people because that was the that period where John became a house husband, I suppose, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. And he he owned up to that. Yeah. I was baking bread, learning how to speak he Cantonese. <laughs> And changing yes. diapers and taking care of uh, care of Sean. He was he was very uh, very chilled out and happy. I thought. Yes, I think um, yes, and this was probably the thing that made him think, "God, I could really do with a break from show business." <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think he would. He he did. One day we were walking through Central Park, and he said, "It's you know, it's been uh, it's been a whirlwind, or whatever." I forget the exact wording, but uh, it was obvious that. Starting in in sixty sixty one and then sixty two, it was uh, they were really in you know a cyclone. It just yes. kept moving faster and faster. And if you, and if you could have told your sixteen year old self some words of wisdom or advice, is there anything even if they ignored it? Is there anything that you would have just said? God, yes, that sixteen year old, I could have told him this little thing. 
is there anything that you you would particularly be yes kind of keen to uh pass on yeah i i think i think we all have to have a voice in what we're we're going to do i did not have a voice and i mentioned this in the book in my personal life uh but i certainly had a voice as a a trial lawyer. I, I was aggressive, not to the point of being unpleasant or obnoxious, but uh, the fact that I did not have a voice in my personal life led to some, some problems, divorces, uh, you know, and uh, I, I think that we all have to speak up for ourselves. That doesn't mean you, you know, you walk around and, you know, ordering people uh, to do this and do that, and you know, either it's my way or the highway. But I, I think if you have to have a voice so that you can, uh, you can decide what you want to do in your life. I think I, I used to tell the young lawyers that uh, you know your career is is like a, a river. You know, you you kind of follow it. It takes you in in different directions, and yes. and you have to just stand up for yourself at certain times in your life and and assert you know who you are and not let uh, other people run your life oh that's a really interesting thing you said there actually because that's the one thing i don't do if somebody in a workplace especially says something i just think i don't want to make it worse so i won't say anything but i'll have to process that rather than and i spoke to someone actually yesterday and they said oh no i always stand up for myself i i always come back and i think i'm always worried it's going to make the situation worse so it's kind of it's really interesting you just said that <laughs> yes well you know you're, you're right i mean all of us have those moments where um you know oh i, I maybe i better not say anything uh and and there are some times when you shouldn't say something but there are other times when you you know you have to say look here this is me this is who i am yeah and and yeah. i think john I, I i got that impression from john uh spending time with him that he really uh began to feel that he had to uh you know kind of stand up and be counted Yes, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, his um, his seventies was quite a difficult. It was a grow. It was probably more of a growing period than his sixties in a way, because it kind I, of the, rea the, re right. the reality of of some of the things he probably did or didn't do, and didn't take that much responsibility. Because let's face it, we often like to just let something drift, and mostly we get away with it. And then once or twice, we don't get away with something that we should have dealt with, and it kind of comes back, and you think last <laughs> that's right. annoying yeah. yes so well, no, you're right you're it's right. interesting it's interesting well look this has been amazing well thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this jay this has been incredible to hear and thank you again for this amazing yeah. book it's I, another it's another great I classic yeah, i appreciate it and uh i'm hoping to get over to england uh i did an interview uh earlier this year with alan parker the documentary oh yes filmmaker. And they're doing a documentary called Borrowed Time. At least that's the the, the name. The, the, and I think it's going to come out sometime around Easter. But they came to the States and some to do some interviews for it in April. Uh, but before they got here, some friend of Alan's told them about my book. And then Alan's, uh, one of his producers, uh, called me and said, we want we want to interview. Will you come to New York? And I said, I'd, I'd rather not go to New York just for one interview. And uh, the whole crew, five of them came down here and interviewed me right in the room that I'm sitting in now uh, for a, a couple of hours. And we had a great time. And I, I actually asked Alan, you know, do you know anybody in connection with the, the, the big Beatles fest in uh, Liverpool? And he said, well, yeah. I said, well, I'd like to go there because I, I think, I think it'd be interesting. I yes. People we really latch on to the the book and the story um uh, so uh he's he's put in a good word for me but i haven't heard anything yet but if i do get to uh, england and london uh i'll give you a shout give me a shout yeah that'd be lovely meet up for a coffee yeah but look have a great yeah. 
great solstice and, and Christmas New Year. But look, yeah, do keep in touch. I can send you the link to this, so you can always we can always put it up somewhere for people to listen to. But um, yeah, it's been amazing. So thank you. This has been great. Well, have a lovely day, and um, thanks again. Merry, this Christmas, been... Merry Christmas to you and the family and your cats. Yes, the cats. So, and your cat too. What's your cat called, by the way? My cat is called Hetty Lamar. Do you remember Hetty Lamar, the actress, the famous actress in the 30s, 40s, and 50s? I I called her Hetty Lamar because I thought Hetty Lamar had a beauty spot on her on her face. And and our cat has a beauty mark, you know, kind of a a black nose. And uh, well, it turns out Hetty Lamar did not have a beauty spot, but that's what we called her. So her name is Hetty. H-E-D-Y. Well, all the all love to Hedy, really. Um, we love our cats, so they get everything. So there you go. Look, take care and have a lovely day. See you, you later. Too. Have a good Bye-bye. day. Thank you very much, David. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that is me, or was me, in conversation with Jay Bergen, talking about his time um, in well with John Lennon during the 70s and much more. The book is out and available from all good bookshops and also online. It's called Lennon the mobster and the lawyer, the untold story. Um, And this is, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these have been archived on Spotify, iTunes and Podbeam. Have a great week. Stay safe.